You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. I'm Bill Powers, and it's Mining Stock Education. And in today's show, we're going to be talking about discerning junior mining company IPOs and whether you should invest in them. I've been getting some emails and questions regarding this. What do you look for? What do you look out for? I think that this teaching will be more about what you should look out for so you don't get burned on buying a junior mining IPO. And when I say junior mining IPO, this could also be a halted stock that was uh, reverse takeovered, and then new management, a new project comes in, and that team hopes to see a re-rating the share price after the halt. Or it could be a spin-out of a company that then begins to be trading again after a long period of time, after a fundamental change. Uh, I've received some of these via a dividend from junior mining companies that I've owned, where they've dividended out new companies. So that's the context in which we're talking when we're talking about discerning junior mining company IPOs. In my personal experience, I want to share that first before I share some things to look out for. In my personal experience as a U.S. investor in Canadian stocks, for me to invest in a private co, it's costly, it's difficult, and it's time-consuming. It is not easy for the U.S. investor to invest in Canadian private companies. My broker won't allow me to do it through my account, so I have to do it directly with the issuer If my money is in Canadian dollars, which it is with my Canadian broker, I have to translate that back to U.S. dollars, send it back to my U.S. bank account, then I have to pay for translation fees. And if it's large amounts, there's only certain ways that I'll do that uh, comfortably. So there's shaving of percentage here and there. Then after the, the company goes public, it's not immediately in my account. It's not free trading. It's far from being free trading. I have to get the certificate. I have to send the certificate to my broker Because there's a legend on it, SEC Rule 144 legend, if you don't know what that is, it was implemented in like 1933, it was supposed to protect U.S. investors, but it basically gives me a huge disadvantage. I can't even do a DRS transfer into my brokerage account, I have to send a physical certificate, every time you mail it's like 75 to 100 bucks just to mail, and so then my broker gets that, we deposit it from there, after the IPO, I'm still not free trading. We're like, what, it could be a month in after the IPO at this point. Then it goes to legend removal. I have to pay hundreds of dollars to get the legend removed. And that process after COVID has taken up to four months. So it could be five months after an initial public offering that as an American investor, my stock even becomes free trading. Whereas with Canadians and many others, if they invest in a private co, the day it goes public a lot of times... If their four-month hold is off, their shares are free trading, and they don't have to go through the extra hassle of what I have to go through. And then when I get my warrants, my warrants have this Rule 144 legend on it. So your broker sends the money to the issuer. The issuer exercises the warrants, sends the shares back to the broker, but it's not free trading. Then I got to get the legend removed, and I have to pay for all that. So there's a lot of extra hassle difficulty, and money that I have to spend as a, U- as a U.S. investor throughout this process. So I just wanted to share a little bit of my personal experience, and that makes me even more cautious, not only to do private placements, but to do private companies, because it's even harder than a standard private placement that I can do directly through my broker. I've invested in, if I counted right in preparation for sharing today, I've invested in seven pre-IPO private companies or companies that have been 
dividended out to me uh, as as a different company, a Spinco from a different junior miner that I owned. And of those seven, uh, I currently have one company that's been dividended out to me that's not trading, uh, Copernico Metals, uh, which hopefully will be trading soon. And then I have another uh, gold company that I invested in over two years ago, and I paid uh, 30 cents a unit for that with no warrant. Uh, The company actually has some very well-respected people in it, and they did their second raise as a pre-public company at 50 cents. So obviously their goal is going to be to go public at some share price higher than 50 cents. But there's a lot of risk. Like I said, it's been two years. There's market risk. There's financing risk. And then you're totally illiquid. There's not like anybody I could sell my shares to if I needed that money back. So there's risks I take as the pre-IPO investor that hopefully I'll be rewarded with when the company does go public. And then another company I invested in uh, last year uh, because I I met the, the gentleman putting the company together really liked the story. I liked the risks that he was taking, leaving a cushy career to pursue an opportunity in the copper space that he liked. I invested in that last May. That company will be going public, uh, I was told, in the next few months, and they also will be a show sponsor, so I'll be featuring them. And at that time, I'll tell you what I paid for my shares, which is what everybody else in the financing paid, which was 40 cents with a full warrant at $1.20, and that'll be a new sponsor I'll feature later in uh, the year. And one company, though, that I invested in three years ago, pre-IPO company, it was recommended to me by somebody very respected in the space. We all, none of us are 10 for 10. In fact, if you're four for 10 in this sector, you can make a lot of money because if on six out of 10, you lose half your money, okay? And then on the other four that you do really well, and if you do really well with a warrant, you make so much money, you make five to 10 times your money that it covers for the for the other duds. And so we all choose duds at times, but I invested in a silver company in South America a few years ago based on a recommendation I was given. And as I was doing my due diligence and talking to the executive, I specifically wanted to know about the share structure and where my entry point was relative to the founders and other key people involved. And the offering was at 10 cents with a full three-year 15-cent warrant. And I was not told of any shares cheaper than mine. But then you go ahead and uh, the company goes public. And then I read in the full long-form prospectus that literally two days before they closed my money and issued my special warrants at 10 cents each, that they did a friends and family round for one cent each. So they they got their shares 90% cheaper than what I was paying. And they issued 15,000 units at one cent per unit for gross proceeds of $150,000 Canadian. But my money, which I sent in, uh, they raised 4.5 million almost dollars Canadian from those of us that bought the 10 cent warrants. But the point is, when I asked the executive what the share structure was, were there cheap shares, who owned them, what'd you do to earn them? I wasn't given any of that information, and it wasn't even made public until the long-form prospectus was put out there after the company IPO'd. And so that was very deceitful. If you want to pay yourself one cent to share, that's fine, but communicate to the investors that you're raising money from the terms of engagement. And so that was a very bad experience that I had, and that stock is under two cents right now. I just checked in preparation for this, and I believe in their last financials, the management spent uh, half a million dollars on themselves and zero dollars on the project. How nice. 
I'm frequently asked uh, to feature IPOing junior miners on the show. I get numerous emails every month of companies wanting exposure to the MSE audience, and I'm always most hesitant and usually never interested in even talking to somebody that has a pre-IPO company for this reason. The way these companies are structured is that a lot of the founders and the people with cheap shares, those first few months are very important to them because they want, a, they want liquidity in the stock. And they're willing even to pay a lot of money to marketers to get the story out there so that they can have liquidity so that they can sell shares to you for 40, 50, 60, 70 cents, shares that they got for one penny. So they're making 40, 50, 60, 70 baggers in the first few months, some of them potentially, if they're not the kind of people you want to invest with, and they didn't make you any money. And so I've avoided it. The only ones that I've even featured were ones that I had an existing relationship with that we were working together already, and they happened to have companies in the group that were doing IPOs. And those companies, I invested in myself. I put my my dollars in the pre-IPO financing. So uh, you want to be very careful when a company is IPOing. And so some things that you want to consider are the historic mode of operation, MO, of the founders and management. You want to ask yourself, what is the capital structure? Who has the cheap shares and why? What did they do to earn those cheap shares? And do you agree with what they did? And does that justify the cheap shares in the company that they have? You obviously want to ask yourself, do I agree with the investment thesis? Do I like it? And is that investment thesis funded to try to achieve those catalysts that the company is laying out? What's the macro trend for the commodity that they're exploring for? developing or producing? Is it a bullish macro situation? And how much marketing premium is in the stock at the time that you're looking to buy the stock? So those are some considerations we want to go through. And when you think about the historic mode of operation of the key players, you want to ask yourself, have they made investors money in the past? Do they stick with their companies? Do they care about their investors? And there are some groups that put together companies in which they give themselves such a dramatic, unfair advantage in terms of their entry point per share price relative to what everybody else gets in. And then they throw many companies out there, realizing that not all of the companies are going to be successful, but they know for them personally that if they can hit success on two, three out of 10 or something like that, that they're just going to make an unseen amount of money. But even on the other eight or seven, they're still going to make money because they're going to have shares that are so cheap. But then what happens is you have a number of companies out there working, whatever one is beginning to hit it big, and that's going to be your biggest return. Then you begin to focus all your attention on that one company. And so you want the teams that you invest with to make your investment in their company number one. How much time, how much attention are they focusing in on that company? How much did they put on the line to make that company happen? And so I've been advised with certain groups that, Bill, if you invest with them, you know, remember this, this is a rent. You're not buying this thing forever. You're not buying this house. You're renting it, and you better be quick. You better be quick, get a good entry point, what you determine to be a good entry point, and then be quick on the sell when you need to sell, especially if things are going to go south because they set themselves up with so, so many cheap shares that they'll just keep blowing it out to get down to their cost basis, which is going to be near a penny or below in some cases. So- just be careful. You can make money with people that structure these companies to their advantage 
And to your disadvantage, you're greatly disadvantaged. You're not aligned because their cost basis is so far below what your cost basis will be as a retail investor buying it in the open market. But there are examples where you can still make money. So you got to do your due diligence and you got to determine. But as one of my mentors told me, just be quick. Even if you invest in one of their companies, be quick and know who you're dealing with. So you're asking yourself, do these guys care about investors? Do they care about a having a good reputation. Everybody will say that they want to have a good reputation, but it's been my experience and discernment that not everybody actually even cares about having a good reputation. And by good reputation, I mean being a manager or a founder or a key investor that really wants to make other people money. One person I've invested with has been Hayadan of Osino Resources. In fact, the private gold company that I mentioned, I invested in that because Hayadan offered me an opportunity to do so. And I made money with him with Osino Resources, which has previously been a multi-year sponsor, invested at 30 cents with a 55 cent warrant. And then that's been as high over $1.60 Canadian at one point. But as you know, stocks go up and down. And so that's a very respectable person. Hardworking, has already made many people, many investors, his friends and family, people like you and me, money over the years, sold multiple companies, impressed Ross Beatty to even get Ross Beatty to go into his deals. And I was with Haya in Beaver Creek at the Beaver Creek Precious Metal Summit a few years ago. And I remember sitting out there and he said to me, Bill, I like making other people wealthy. I like making other people money. And I said, wow, that is the exact attitude. And oh, that all of Vancouver had that attitude or all of Toronto had that attitude to where nobody's against you making money. Make as much money as you want. Just pull other people up and pull other people along. Make other people money. You make yourself money as you make other people money. Don't make up money at other people's expenses. Well, I'm telling you, there's a lot of people that are willing to make money off of you, not make money while they make you money, okay? And they don't care. They don't care that you know. And... Ask yourself, how many irons in the fires do these guys have? Is this company you're going to invest in? Is this their number one? Are they laying it on the line for this? The copper company that you'll hear about later, the gentleman I invested behind, he left a cushy job with the trading house and he didn't need the money, but he saw an opportunity and he's laying it on the line and taking risks uh, to do it. And that's someone in in a project that that I'm getting behind. So you want to ask yourself, how important is the company to them? And you're going to ask yourself about capital structure and cheap shares. And I've been already talking this through. It's important to understand this so that you know where the future selling pressure will come from. Where is your entry point relative to where others bought in or were gifted shares? And so if you're going to buy an IPOing company or a company that's been halted and there's been an RTO and it's a new management team and a new project and it's coming to market, you want to know where they got their shares. And you want to determine if the founders and management that are in charge of this entity are aligned with you. You know, years ago, I was pitched a private gold company that was going public in Africa. And I took the meeting because a friend asked me to take the meeting. And the gentleman proposed me buying shares at 50 cents per unit. And when I asked him what where he was in at, he was in at 5 cents mostly and then a little bit at 10 cents he bought in. But he's asking me to buy in at 50 cents, which is five to mostly 10 times higher than his cost basis. And when I asked him questions, I concluded there's not enough in it for me to pay 10 times more than what you paid. And I don't see enough work being done here to justify you asking me to pay 10 times more per unit than you paid. And then when they go to market, they're going to hopefully 
go to market at even higher than 50 cents. And a lot of groups or newsletter writers will get their, get their group in to the pre-IPO and, and they get them in at a certain point. And all they care about, as I mentioned earlier, is like the liquidity in those first few months so that at least the people that got in when it was a private company can get out with at least their cost basis. And then maybe they, many of them will hold the shares that are left over after they covered their initial cost basis, or maybe they sell for a double and then they just let the warrants ride. And so that's something you want to look at too when you're going to buy a company that's coming out of the private uh, into the public domain. You say, where are the warrants at? The company that I invested in, I invested at 40 cents last year. The warrant is at $1.20. So for that even to be in the money and in the money significant enough for me to exercise it because of the hassle that I told you about previously, the company has, is going to experience a lot of success for me to get to that point. So looking at that from a retail investor, you know, there's not going to be so much motivation for me to sell my shares right away unless there's dramatic success out of the gate, which I hope for. But then hopefully everybody can make money along the way. But you want to ask yourself, where are the warrants at? Where, where are the shares? Where were they issued at? Where would that selling pressure come from? You got to understand your entry point relative to other people's cost basis. You got to know who has the cheap shares. You got to determine and see if you agree with the fact that they have those cheap shares because a lot of times they get the cheap shares and they get themselves under 10% to where they don't need to report so you don't know when they're selling those shares. And they can just sell. If you got your shares for a penny, you just sell over a period of time, 100,000 shares a day, 50,000 shares a day, and you just do that over months and before you know it, they made millions without even having to make you and, and give you the value on a per share basis that you signed up for. Now, hopefully management will have escrowed their cheap shares to where they come free trading over time, but there's situations and they're out there to where a lot of the key people that put the company together, maybe they're not managers, maybe they aren't insiders per se, even though they put the company together so they don't report and they get themselves under 10%. And they got a boatload of cheap shares and you need to be thinking about how to protect number one, which is you. So you need to factor all these things in before you buy shares of a particular company. I'm showing right now for YouTube listeners, a presentation that Jamie Keach did at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference years ago. And he talked about the value pyramid and how a lot of Vancouver companies are put together. And he gives an example of a, a company, a theoretical company, but it's often done similarly to where they do a private round at a penny and they issue 32 million shares and they raise $250,000 doing that. Then the next round to family and friends, they do it five cents. They issue 9 million shares and they raise $450,000 via that placement. Then the next placement, they do at 15 cents and they raise almost 8.7 million. They issue 8.7 million shares and they raise $1.3 million. And then they do a pre-IPO round at 50 cents, and then they raise $8 million off of 16 million shares, and then they go public with about 60 million shares, a 50 cent pre-IPO share price valuation, and they're off to the races. And you just want to understand how this has been structured. Any company you would buy in, you would want to understand where the selling pressure is. You would want to understand if you agree with the cheap shares that were given. Anybody that knows me and anybody that has worked for me believes my grandpa instilled this in me because he built two grocery stores up from nothing and had a lot of employees working for him and he would hold them to account. He would expect a lot out of them, he told me. 
but he would always make sure that they had a fair wage and they got paid. And my grandfather, I remember, he would not even shop at certain stores because he didn't believe that those stores paid a fair wage to their employees. So he demanded a lot from his employees, but he also made sure that they got a fair wage and that they were paid for the labor that they gave to his business. And so if somebody's put in hard work, I don't mind them getting paid. I want them to get rewarded for the hard work that they did. It's not that anybody, uh, a founder or key management can't get cheaper shares than you that is going to buy in the open market, but it's, do they deserve it? Is there an escrow on that? Or can, can they flood it in the first six months or the first year before the company even gets off the ground? Can they flood the market with their shares? Is there some sort of hold? And it's not enough to just say, okay, we're just going to trust you with the escrow. No, there needs to be an escrow in place and everybody needs to see if they're selling. And those are just things that you need to really consider. But the people like Hayadon that I mentioned earlier, or Ivan Bebek, who never sells a share of the companies that he's involved with until it's at takeover point. I think he might have sold some shares just to cashlessly exercise some options at one point. But that's one of the reasons why we work with Ivan Bebek and his companies have been show sponsors is because I know that he will do whatever it takes to try to push those companies forward. And the company or projects may not be successful, especially in the time frame in which we would like to experience the success. But a mining entrepreneur doesn't control all the variables. They can just do the best with what they're faced with. But I know that he's not going to sell out his shareholders. I know that he's going to do his best and put in the labor and the effort to try to push those companies forward. And that's, that's why I invest in Ivan's companies. And that's why he's been a multi-year show sponsor for four years now. And you want to assess those things and you want to determine if you can trust those founders. Can you trust those management teams or are they going to try to take advantage of you? And so some final points to consider, and we cover this in other shows, so I'm not going to cover it in the purpose of what we're talking about here today. Is the investment thesis solid? Is it clearly articulated? And is it funded? Do they have enough money as this newly IPOing company or this formerly halted company that's now a new iteration? Do they have enough money to go pursue these catalysts that they're talking about? Is the macro trends supportive of what they're trying to accomplish? Because if the macro trends turn bearish in copper and it's a copper company, everything becomes difficult. The cost of capital goes up. Capital disappears from the sector, and so everything becomes more difficult for the executives in those cases. But if you're bullish copper, or you're bullish uranium, or you're bullish nickel, or you're bullish copper, or you're, or you're bullish gold, or you're bullish silver, and the company's a silver, gold, nickel, uranium company, then that's supportive of what you're trying to accomplish. Because a lot of times a company can IPO, and just because people are bullish uranium, or bullish copper, or whatever the commodity is, that share price will go up. I've seen this. In 2016, when I just started at this and I didn't know what I was doing, I'd buy a gold company, I'd buy a silver company in Explorco, and I would be up three, four times on my money, and the company didn't achieve anything. And if I go back and look at a lot of those companies, they never achieved anything, but the share price went up three, four times. And so, boom, there's your opportunity to make money. And if you know what you're buying, you're going to understand all that, and you're going to sell when you're up two or three times, or, or at least when you're four times up, because they're selling the whole dream on a hope and a promise. And there's likely never substance that's even going to come from the pitch that the promoter is telling you. So you want to understand these things. You want to understand how much marketing premium is built into the stock. Who's marketing it? Do you like how they market? Are they marketing to the most ignorant of retail investors who really don't even understand the mining sector? Because if that's the case, just understand that the stocks will go up faster and higher in the short term, but they will also fall lower and harder 
in the medium term when those investors don't even understand what they bought and they all begin to sell off? Or is the team marketing to a more educated audience that actually understands the investment value proposition? Therefore, they're more likely to hold on to the stock, even if the first set of drill results don't turn out the way we would all hope, because sometimes you don't get your best drill results or your desired drill results on the first round. But if the investors understand that and the investors understand what the company, the management team is trying to accomplish, they're more likely to stick around. And so what type of investors are the marketing attempts bringing into the stock? Are these trend chasers, the people that buy just because they were sent an email, or these more sophisticated, educated investors that actually understand what they're buying? You should be monitoring all these things, especially in your your bigger positions. And then where are you getting in on the marketing push? Is there more marketing push ahead, which could cause you to have a little cushion in terms of gain above your cost basis in this particular stock? Just be aware of all these things. And so this wasn't comprehensive, but this is some food for thought, points to consider as you look at IPOing junior mining stocks, as you look at maybe buying a company that's been halted, that's been reorganized, new management team, new assets, reverse takeover, but they're trading again. It's like an IPO. You, these are some points to assess. And I wish you the best. I don't want to see you getting taken advantage of. So remember, you are responsible for your investments, decisions, and you are responsible for you remaining number one. Grow in your discernment. Do your due diligence. And if you find a good junior mining company that just IPO'd and you like it, go ahead and buy it. But just take responsibility for your investments, decisions. This is Bill Powers. I hope this was helpful. Some of you have been emailing me and asking. So here are some quick thoughts I put together on a Sunday afternoon. I wish you all the best in your junior mining investing endeavors. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks concomitant with that if you don't do the work or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too i just started to study up on mining stocks and i just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly the mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors, and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.